So Dan, is it too soon to say it's coming home? <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know about that. Maybe. I was going to say that mince pies are certainly out. The England football vibes are going pretty strong. And I guess the month of November is now behind us. And so we're, what, a few turkey dinners away from Christmas, aren't we, really? I think that's right. And I think we talked, didn't we, a couple of weeks ago about how crazy November was for meetings, for conferences, etc. We obviously had our own annual client conference last week. So thanks to all of our clients that came along. It was a really great event. It's the first time we've run it as an afternoon conference, followed by a party. And I think it's fair to say the atmosphere was buzzing. So really good event and look forward to the next one. It was great. Shout out to everyone who we saw there. It was good to catch up with people. Um, I was at the Amesy conference as well, week before, spoke to quite a lot of podcast listeners there. So that was really great. Hi to everyone that I saw there. Um, did enjoy that. So for me, especially, it's been nice to be getting out and about a little bit in November. It's been a good month, hasn't it? But it's all over now. And yeah, football. Football is on everyone's brains, I think. Obviously, we are through the World Cup. We're through the group stage. Hope everyone's enjoyed watching the matches so far. Should we talk a bit about what today's episode is going to cover, Dan? I've been really looking forward, actually, to talking to our football analytics team. You know, I've spoken to them a few times and I've been able to learn a little bit more about what they do, really. We're going to effectively digest what's happened so far in the tournament, what the data shows us and, and a few wider applications of using data in football more generally. Really looking forward to this one. And then just to get in a little bit about what they do in terms of how they analyze football games to use data and how they use it with, with some of their clients, or LCP's clients, which are a bunch of top level football clubs who use our analytics and stuff, which is quite amazing, really. Absolutely. So shall we hear from them? Let's do it. Great. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. Great. So I've really been looking forward to this conversation today. So I'm delighted to say that we're joined by Ashley Mould and Bart Hooby from LCP's football analytics team. Ashley, Bart, welcome. Hi, Dan. Hi, nice to be here. Hi, Dan. Yes, good to be here. Welcome both. Football analytics is probably a department that not all of our listeners are that familiar with. So I wonder if we could just start by hearing each of your stories about what football analytics is to you, but also how you got into that line of work. Ashley, should we start with you? When I was a boy, into a teenager, I played a lot of football. When I was a teenager, I spent a few years at Bournemouth Academy before not breaking into the football world and then going down, I guess, a more traditional route through going to university, doing an economics degree, and then eventually joining LCP to be a pensions actuary is what I actually joined to do originally. And then around the time that I joined, I found a couple of the partners working at LCP, Bart being one of them, were investigating how we could use our skills in different areas, football being one of those areas they were looking into. And I guess given my background and my keenness to use data to help people in the football industry make better decisions, I was more than happy to get involved when I heard that that idea was being flown around. So it was a case of came for the pension, stayed for the football. <laughs> exactly. Although still very much like the pensions, I would say. And Bart, how about you? Yeah, so I'm a bit older than Ashley. I've been working in pensions now for over 30 years. My background in terms of football is more of a fan than a player. I've loved watching football and indeed I've loved the stats around football for many, many years since the mid-60s. I came into the traditional actuarial profession 
And then around five years or so ago, partly inspired by, I think, Moneyball, the way in which data's been used in baseball for about 20 years to use recruitment, we thought, could we build a similar business within LCP using our data analytics skills? And we've developed a relationship with an external football consultancy and built quite an innovative football player recruitment platform, which we now have about 25 football clubs and various other organizations around the world in 10 different countries as clients of LCP. And you've been to the odd Football World Cup here or there, haven't you, Bart? I think I heard you say on another podcast. I have, actually, yes. Interesting. I found out yesterday that apparently the world record for going to consecutive World Cups is 10. I'm up to nine now, so pretty close. I'm going to Qatar in a couple of weeks. I'll be my ninth World Cup. So I date back to Italia 90, which I think was in many ways the rebirth of football as a really popular form of entertainment coming out of the rather darker days of the 80s. I go back quite a long time. I mean, I love going to World Cups. They're fantastic events. That's cool. I mean, you're one away from the world record. I suppose, frustratingly, whoever that person is, they might well be carrying on as well, just always be one ahead of you. So you just need to try and find out when they miss one. Yeah, we're keeping track. That was the thought in my head too. Well, we've mentioned the World Cup, and of course, we are in the midst of the World Cup. I'm sure there's plenty of listeners who've followed all the games avidly. Dan, I know you usually build your interest as time goes past, so hopefully your interest is a little bit built now that we're out of the group stage for England particularly. First question for me is to both of you, how is your World Cup experience so far? Maybe we'll talk about particular high or low points. What surprised you the most? Any of the particular fallouts? There's obviously been some unexpected results so far. I think for me, it actually took me a little while to get into the World Cup. And I don't know whether that was because of the bit of a strange time of year that is being held in or more of the other issues around this World Cup. Actually, I probably didn't go into the start of the tournament with the same level of excitement as I have done in previous tournaments. What I would say as time goes on, I'm getting more and more into it, watching a lot of the games. It's funny, my mum is from Ghana and my dad is from England, so I do have somewhat of a dual allegiance there. And my highs and lows very much depend on how my two teams are doing. I would count myself as an England fan, but obviously seeing Ghana do well is important to me. And actually, the thing I'm most excited about is Friday, 7 o'clock, Ghana are playing Uruguay. And a lot of people say that football fans don't forget. And in 2010, Luis Suarez, some people listening, I'm sure will remember, <laughs> made a last minute handball on the line to deny Ghana getting through to the semi-finals of the World Cup. So I'm hoping that we'll get some revenge this time around on Friday. So very much looking forward to that. Nice. And I guess mirroring Ashley's comment, I think it's been a unique World Cup in many ways in terms of the amount of focus that has been on the ethical issues relating to migrant workers, LGBT plus rights and matters like that, which has meant that I've had somewhat mixed feelings about booking my tickets to go and see the semi-finals and final of the World Cup in a couple of weeks' time. Very much looking forward to those. And also, I think, actually, to visiting Qatar and actually seeing what it's like in the country itself. I think that is one of the magic things about the World Cup, is travelling to countries and seeing what's happening there. So I think engaging with the issues is important. In terms of football, I think there have been some Interesting results, both from a footballing and an analytic perspective. There have been three big surprises so far, I think, in terms of football match results. Argentina losing to Saudi Arabia, Germany losing to Japan, and somewhat surprisingly, I think, Belgium beating Canada in terms of the statistical numbers. So the first two would be regarded as big shocks. The last one, in fact, Canada, when you look at the stats, were overwhelmingly the better team in the game, but lost 1-0 to Belgium. So I think when you look at the stats, you see some surprises that some people wouldn't necessarily spot. Interesting. And maybe perhaps we'll get into that. I just wanted to go back quickly to your point, because I 
agree with you. I felt a bit conflicted about the World Cup. I haven't been quite sure how to feel about it, I guess. And I suppose that's because, as you said, there's at least three or four reasons why you might argue quite strongly that Qatar isn't really a good host. And arguments have been batted backwards and forwards. I mean, you can sort of look at it a bit like investing, can't you? It's like, do you completely exclude those things from the portfolio or do you try and engage with it positively? And you can make arguments for both approaches, really, can't you? And I know you've been following as well, Bart, some of the coverage of some of those issues. And there's that question of, is it actually positive because it's creating coverage, because people are talking about it? And I think you've just got to look at the details there. And there's a bit of evidence that it might be, actually. You are seeing, I think, some quite honest coverage from media outlets, BBC and others that, that cover issues like the sustainability, like the rights of LGBTQ people, like the rights of migrant workers. I think that's right. I mean, a lot of people think Qatar is a funny place to hold the World Cup. And I think as a country, it probably is. But the Middle East is a real hotbed of football fanaticism. And I think the Middle East itself deserves to hold a World Cup. And unfortunately, some of the ways in which Qatar win the World Cup are questionable. But I think holding it in that area of the world is a good thing. The sustainability thing, there are pros and cons, but the fact they're holding it in one area, one city, and therefore much less travel for both teams and fans can be seen as positive. And clearly the migrant worker and LGBT plus and women's rights issues are serious ones. But again, I think the football being such a powerful thing has actually increased the focus on those issues within both Qatar and the Middle East. And certainly within Qatar itself, there's been significant change, certainly on the migrant workers' rights over the last two or three years. Hopefully it will be sustained past the World Cup, but that's a big thing. But I think that focus has had quite an impact. Can be positive. The Economist had an interesting article on that. Final point on that area before we move on. I kind of have this increasing feeling that sport does have a bit of a responsibility because there's a lot of soft power associated with hosting sport events. It's a real chance for the host to burnish their credibility. And there's a lot of unearned credibility, if you like, that comes with these events. And that's just true, whether you like it or not. Of course, autocrats go after it to try and burnish their credibility. And so I don't have much time for people who say, oh, you've got to keep that stuff out of sport because it's part of it, whether you like it or not. And you just have to make our messy way through it, don't we? I'm interested. My daughter's at university studying politics and international relations. And up till now, hasn't had much interest in football. But this World Cup is such a major thing from an international relations and political point of view that we've had a lot of interesting conversations on that side, more so than on the football itself. Interesting. And I wonder if that will inadvertently create additional football followers in the future as they realise the voice and the power that it can have outside of the game. Should we talk about England? It's probably where most people are hoping to hear both of your views, both as football fans, but also what the data is showing us. So we obviously have now completed the group stage with a good result for England, probably was the statistically expected result, I guess. Tell me if I'm wrong on that. We obviously listened with a lot of interest to your episode with our colleagues on Insurance Uncut, which happened before all the games kicked off. And I think you mentioned on that, that Iran and US are probably better than people think. And I just thought that was quite an interesting comment. And I wondered if you could expand on that. And clearly, we've already now seen the group results, but I think it helps get an insight into the data. That's right. I think I did say that I thought that England would do well in the World Cup, provided we got out of our group, because all three teams England were playing were in the top 20 rated teams in the world, but particularly USA and Iran are stronger than people are expecting. And I think England's 6-2 defeat of Iran was a tremendously good result. I think we then found a bit of a reality check against a very solid USA side. But I think getting out of the group and topping the group has been a real achievement. I think Wales were the weakest team and unfortunately they did come bottom of the group. But they had a good try. What you saw with both the USA and Iran were some very talented footballers who 
perhaps went a bit under the radar. And certainly when we look at them on Transfer Lab, our analytics tool, we can see the many talented players both sides have. Let's recap on that a little bit. We'll point listeners to the podcast you did before, but let's just recap quickly so people got a basic understanding of what the data and analytics actually is that, that you're working with here. Maybe, Ashley, could you walk us through the Transfer Lab, what it all means and what the output looks like? Transfer Lab is essentially a tool that helps clubs make recruitment decisions, so decide which players to buy and sell. We get match event data from a data provider in, and we put that through an algorithm. And I should say what that match event data actually is. What I mean by an event is there was a pass in this area of the pitch and made by this player. It went to this area of the pitch, and this was the outcome. That pass was successful, not successful. So every match is broken down into those types of events in an incredible amount of detail. We then put that raw data through our algorithm, which works out the impact every one of those actions has on the probability of either scoring or not conceding the next goal. And that is how we assess player performance. So a player that performs well is a player that contributes highly to the probability of your team scoring. And we put that, I guess, complex modeling into an interface that non-experts can use and use that to make decisions. It's measuring this sort of implied probability of contribution to the game in terms of goals, but looking out not just at the scoring of the goals, obviously, but a wide variety of events. And from what I've seen you've written and you've talked about, it's not just about saying, is player X better than player Y? It's as much about creating these profiles of different roles and so that you can look at what kind of profile player fits. Is that right? And how it might evolve over time. That's correct. You could say, imagine you are, I don't know, the Arsenal ladies manager looking to pick up a new central midfielder for the next year you could build a profile of what central midfielder you're looking to fit into your team say you think dribbling is more important than i don't know passing because you want a player who's a bit more dynamic and is going to carry the ball up the pitch rather than necessarily link up with other players you could build that type of profile within our platform and get a different ranking of players than you would do with another profile if you're looking for a different style of player building on all of that data i guess one of my first thoughts is So we've got the England squad. Of course, the squad was announced a few months ago. Did Southgate miss anyone? Does the data show that there's other, I mean, clearly there's lots of talent in the UK, but any sort of screamers from your perspective? I'm sure Gareth Southgate and his team have reasons for picking all the players they have done. And one will be how players gel. But purely from a data perspective, there probably are a couple of omissions that we would have expected to have seen in the squad. One of those being Tammy Abraham, having a great season out in Italy this year and potentially has gone a bit under the radar because he's not playing in England, but on a range of different profiles, assessing different skill sets. He appears as being the second best striker of late, sometimes even the best striker of late, next to Harry Kane. And another potential omission from Gareth Southgate's squad is Tamori at AC Milan. Again, having a very strong season with them and again, might have potentially gone under the radar just because he's not playing in England. Fascinating. Do you think the England management team used some kind of stats? I mean, I know you've mentioned before that analytics have been in football for about 10 years-ish. It's all very secretive, hush-hush about what people use, what people don't use. But I think you sort of implied that lots of clubs do use it now, don't they? Do you think England does? I'm sure England do use performance analytics to assess how well their players are performing, their fitness levels. I think in terms of recruiting players, they don't have quite the same issue as football teams do in the sense that they're collection of possible eligible eligible players is pretty strictly defined. I think all football uses data a lot more. They'll be using it in a slightly different way, typically, how a club does. Of course, yeah, because you're saying most clubs are doing it for recruitment purposes. They're trying to cast a wide net and find someone out of a huge potential pool that's just enormous, whereas the question at England is a little bit different. Building on 
Mary's last question then. So does the data shed any light on some of the decision-making facing sort of Gareth Southgate, let's say with the striker combinations? So you've seen in the first game, he ran with Kane, Saka and Sterling, and then for the Wales game, Rashford and Foden instead. I mean, does the data just say that they're all incredibly exceptionally good strikers or is there anything to get into the differences there between them that might be interesting? The data in general does show they're all exceptionally good players. Clearly, they'll have slightly different skill sets. And in terms of like pairing different players together, you could look at the data to do that. In actual fact, I'd say that a manager like Southgate, who's been with the squad for quite a long period of time, you'd hope wouldn't need that extra insight in order to make those decisions. And probably a more important thing at that kind of level is more of the softer stuff that data can't tell you. So the relationship between players and how that combines in your squad, rather than say purely what the data is telling you about their skill sets. You also made a comment in the previous podcast. I found it fascinating about these different profiles. And you commented about, I think it was Christian Eriksen and the way he's sort of evolved from one profile into a different profile. Maybe run through that quickly and just expand on that quickly. I thought it was a brilliant insight. This is just building on the idea of how you can use different profiles and different skill sets to assess how good a player is. And Christian Eriksen is one of those players who early on in his career was playing as a more dynamic box-to-box midfielder in terms of getting around the pitch a lot and relying on his physical ability quite a bit in his play. What our different player profile showed was that at one point in time, so as he aged, we in fact predicted him to be better as a deep-lying playmaker, so someone who sits further back in the pitch and dictates play from there, rather than a box-to-box midfielder, someone who gets around quite a lot. And that's because the skills that you rely upon to be this box-to-box midfielder are typically quite physical in nature and therefore deteriorate more quickly with age than the type of skills you need to be successful as a deep-lying playmaker. So that was some analysis we did on Christian Eriksen some time ago and just looking at one of the current players in England squad, Jude Bellingham, who for a number of years has really stood out in the data, even in his first season at Birmingham, stood out as being an exceptional player. And indeed, in years to come, and we're years away from that, I'd expect him to be another player who could revert to a more deep playmaker role, which he already plays sometimes, rather than a more box-to-box role, just because looking at his skill set is very wide and he's very strong in a large number of areas. I find that fascinating, that part of the analysis where you show the change over time in a player's ability. I say change, I mean, it only goes in one direction, sadly. As someone who turned 40 a year or so ago, I've always found that hit slightly different just because for anyone in their late 30s, it's especially painful to look at the shape of those charts. But I guess that's more from a club perspective, isn't it? Clubs really care. I guess it's just a reality. It feels a bit awkward, doesn't it, to sort of say that. But I suppose you're just saying that's what the data says about what happens to players. I would say it feels particularly awkward for me. I mean, I'm 29 now. (laughs) and had a fairly bright start to my football career as a teenager. But looking at those graphs, it's purely downhill for me now, I think. I'd be really keen to move and maybe talk in a bit more detail about the data, because obviously that's, I guess, for both of you, part of why you got into this role in the first place. I can't remember to what level of detail you mentioned this on the previous podcast with our colleagues, but I guess I'm very conscious of the randomness element. So you can do all this statistical analysis where you're looking at hundreds of thousands of moves and hundreds and hundreds of games. But every time a game is played, it's only played once. So is there anything you can do with the data or do you just have to accept that that is a drawback of the data? I wouldn't really call it a drawback of the data. I think it's what makes football such an exciting game that people really love because you can have unusual results even when one team is much better than the other. What we're doing with the data is helping improve the likelihood of a team finding good players and then that team being successful. But you can never guarantee in football success. And I think we wouldn't enjoy the game if you could. I've already mentioned there have been a few really big shocks in the World Cup. But when you actually look at what's called the expected goals, the number of goals you'd expect a team to score compared with the number they have scored, and I think of the 32 
first two round games. I think only 17 of those, actually, the result went in line with the expected goals. So we're always seeing surprises and shocks. But I think what football clubs can do with data is improve their likelihood. And over the time of the season, 40 games, etc., that luck will begin to smooth out. There is a bit of a falsehood when people say the team that won the title is the best team. It's not always the best team. Sometimes it's the luckiest team. But again, that's what makes football the exciting game it is. Did you just say 17 out of 32, the expected number of goals was the actual number of goals? 17 out of the 32, the result was in line with the expected goals. The number of goals the team will be expected to score from the chances they had, if the goals had actually gone in line with that expected, you'd have had 17 results the same, but 15 would have been different. And three of them were, as I mentioned earlier. That's what I was going to say, it's more than half. <laughs> yes, so that's half. not bad. That's pretty good in investing. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Not bad. <laughs> that's slightly more than half. Sounds about right. All the data you're looking at is from club games, isn't it? And obviously the World Cup is national teams. And also, like you're saying, what might be true when you get a player and play them for a number of seasons, I guess you get the benefit of that large numbers effect, whereas World Cup is just single knockout games. And that makes World Cup harder to predict. But how does the club data versus country data affect how you're looking at things there? When it comes to international football, you get very small samples in which to analyse players, not just because there are fewer international games compared to domestic matches, but also when you look at the strength of opponents and analyse performances. So for example, it's much easier for Harry Kane to score multiple goals against a team like Iran, perhaps, who we played in the group stages, to the teams we'll play in the last stage of the competition. So it gets quite hard to actually analyse performance in that environment. The World Cup is such a unique stage for players to be playing in. Data definitely doesn't have all the answers in that type of scenario. And this is where I guess sort of words like experience probably come in and probably matter more in these big tournaments than they do in your day-to-day domestic tournaments. If over the course of many, many games, what we provide in the data gives a very accurate representation of what will actually happen, there's no way of saying whether that will happen in the 90th minute of the semi-final when you're chasing, getting through to what will be the biggest game of your career. So then data may not give the whole picture. I'm really interested in that point and the word experience probably from two different angles so because there are fewer international games and therefore the teams don't play together as often as they do with the league teams the sort of player that's going to gel really well with other team members with very limited amounts of training versus multiple times a week in their league team do you think experience is key for that and I suppose then the other part is what you just described Ashley in terms of experience and not losing your head when you're in this new stage with more pressure I don't mind who answers. I'll let you say that, Ashley. <laughs> I've never played a football at a professional level, but I think experience and gelling with teammates is really important. I would argue a lot of weight should be put on that in competitions like this when you don't get that much time to train together and you clearly have other interests for the majority of the time when you're playing football. I think those type of soft relevance probably have more of an impact here than they do in domestic football. The other angle to soft elements that I'm always quite conscious of is attitude. So you've got some players that are real grafters and you've got some players that are superstars and maybe they're slightly toxic in the changing room. Does the data pick anything about that up or do we rely on other observations for those factors? I think with that, a good player will generally be one who gets on with his teammates. So there is going to be a strong correlation between people who are collaborative and performance, but there are outliers. I think one could argue Cristiano Ronaldo is quite a character who some like, some not so sure. And certainly he scores a lot of goals and takes credit for them, not necessarily giving that to all his teammates. So you could argue there are certain players like that who maybe stand out. So there'll be a correlation between good performance 
and being a collaborative player. But also, I think it's one of those things where we can say data takes you and where you need to go at the next stage. So this is something that came out with Moneyball, with baseball, and I think it's very much the same with the way we deal with our clients' clubs in football. What we're doing is helping clubs put together short lists of players to look at. But such an important part when you recruit a player is their character. Recruiting a player from overseas is not just how collaborative they are, but whether they will be able to cope with a different language, with a different culture, with different weather. So they're the sort of things that recruitment some people within clubs will then go and see face-to-face. They'll talk to players, they'll talk to agents. So we're not ever saying that analytics will get you the whole way to finding the right player for your club. But what it can do is give you a short list, which means that you can apply your scouting resources much more effectively. It's interesting, isn't it? Because like you say, the answer to that question is almost in the data a little bit in the way you're analysing it, I think, because you're not just looking at who scores the most goals. Because if you're just looking at who scores the most goals, you might say, well, Ronaldo scores the most goals because he just shoots every single time he has the ball, which might not be the right thing for the team to do. But you're saying the chance of the team scoring the next goal, and somehow it does implicitly allow for how they're journeying with teammates, you would have thought in some way. So you might get people who are a little bit annoying, but somehow they do still have this hugely positive impact on the team. Yeah, and certainly if you build a rounded player profile and assess players against that, you would see that. You might see that a player who is just shooting all the time has high output in one particular area of the skills that you're looking for, but they'll then fall down in every other area because they're not having such a big impact in those areas of their game. The other angle to experience, of course, is generally an experienced player is going to be an older player. And Dan and I, I know, have discussed the comments you made on the previous podcast episode around the data does tell us that things slope off with age. How does that balance against the benefits of an experienced player in the World Cup setting? It's going to vary massively by position, I think. It's a fine balance between certain positions rely quite heavily on those skills that do deteriorate more with age. And although there is a benefit of experience, I expect that's probably outweighed by the impacts of skills deteriorating. I think positions that I'd probably characterise more as fitting into that mould of like your wingers who potentially the benefit of youth having a bit more pace is more beneficial than the experience. And we often see young wingers be quite successful at the top end of the game, whereas defenders or central defenders in particular, where the skills that are important tend to deteriorate a bit more slowly with age and those deep line playmakers, then you see experience really benefit as players come on. I think one example for England in the game against Wales, in fact, was having Jordan Henderson in midfield. He's not the youngest of players, but they were certainly commenting about how his was the voice that was being heard around the field. He was a player who was encouraging the England players and bringing them together throughout the game. So I think that sort of experience is something that doesn't necessarily show up in the data, but clearly is part of being an experienced and professional footballer. You referred a second ago, actually, to these conversations you're having with your clients. I'd love for you to try and take us inside some of those conversations. Your clients are football clubs. How does the conversation go when you turn up with this stuff? Are you greeted with scepticism or what? And how's that changed over time? It's definitely changed over time and it's still a bit mixed. Early on, you obviously had a lot more scepticism. It's been quite fortunate for me that we got into this industry really when it was starting to take off. We were involved in the kind of early development of this use of data within football And when we were first going to potential clients and trying to explain what our ideas, we were having to explain the fundamental concepts of what we meant by expected goals and convincing most clubs that use of data was a good thing in general. 
actually now when we go out and try to explain to people what we're doing there's almost a general appreciation amongst most football clubs that there is a benefit of doing some of this analytics and bringing data into your decision making processes and it's just talking about exactly how to do that and what data sources and what analytics are of most use so it's definitely been that evolution since we've been working in the industry are they sort of looking for their intuition to back it up or looking for data to back up the intuition is that still the way it works a lot of the time It's funny. I mean, I think the biggest validation for me that what we're doing is accurate and helpful is when I'll be speaking to either a client or a prospect and showing them they've asked me to look up a player on our system and it's not a player I'm familiar with. And I bring up their data on screen and I'm not really sure whether it's going to match what they think about that player. And so often I get nods or if there is a surprise, I kind of explain what that means from a technical background and it seems to back up their intuition. I think quite often when people look at what we do, they're looking for it to match their intuition and that's how they gain validation from it. But actually, I probably prefer it when there are slight surprises and we can explain that and then people still agree because there is a rational explanation for why it's surprised them initially. I suppose they're the most interesting conversations, aren't they, where the result isn't as expected. You work through why and actually that gives them additional insight and that's kind of the point, I suppose, isn't it? From what I understand, your system doesn't actually look at value per se, but I suppose the intuition these scouts have is a version of value. So if there's something that's coming up in the data that's not in the intuition, then that might suggest something's being underappreciated and maybe undervalued potentially in that. Yeah, I think what they can do is see at a high level, it fits their picture of that player. And then when you dig a bit deeper, it can give them extra insights into the skills of those players. And then once you've identified the sort of player that you're interested in, you can then build that player profile and find other players who would also fit that profile. And then you can start looking to maximise your value for money by which of those players may be the most affordable, both in terms of transfer fee and or salary. Bart, we were talking a second ago before we went on air about how we might see analytics maybe even start to shape the way the game football is played. And there's that example that's often cited, I think, in basketball, whereby if you look at the map of where shots are taken from in basketball it's completely changed over sort of the last 20 years to really concentrate around a couple of areas do you think that is what we see in football does that have any relevance or is it just a different game it is the big example people always quote about the effectiveness of analytics in sport and it is unfortunately i think rather simplistic one it's pretty obvious that if you can get three points for shooting just outside the loop and two points for shooting just inside it you ought to always shoot from outside it or go for the two points when you're very near the hoop. So you can do a load of analytics, which proves what your intuition told you. From my point of view, I think for analytics to be really useful, you have to go a bit of a step beyond that. And I think it is beginning to do so. I think within football, it's being used, as we've already talked about, for recruitment. But I think there are areas where it can be used potentially, as you say, maybe even to shape the way in which the game is played. I think one area I find particularly interesting at the moment is that of heading in football. There's been a concern for some years about the impact of excess heading on players' health, in particular with regard to concussions and micro-concussions. And already in Scotland, they've put a ban on heading. This was only introduced this week on the day before and after a game. So I think there's a recognition that we need to reduce the number of headers in football. We've already done quite a bit of analysis using the data we have on the amount of heading in football. In particular, it is quite surprising and indeed shocking how much more heading there is the lower you go down the pyramid so there is relatively little heading in Premier League football similar to 
the amount of heading in the continent. But then as you go down the pyramid and into Scottish football, there's broadly twice as much heading going on in those. And a lot of those headers are high-impact headers by strikers and central defenders when the ball is kicked a long way down the pitch. And they're almost certainly the most impactful and most damaging long-term headers. So what can we do about that? I think we can use the analytics potentially to find a way to reduce some of those headers. There's already been a change to the goal kick rule, which I think has been quite beneficial. They allow goal kicks to be played to defenders within the box, and that has reduced the number of long goal kicks. But I think there are ways in which one could change the rules and use analytics to support that to reduce the number of these high-impact headers. So, for example, maybe limit the number of kicks that can be played a long way down the pitch or make them less beneficial for the team making those kicks. We can certainly use analytics to help support that. Spectators love the hoof it down the pitch approach to football, don't they? Are you saying it's a tactical thing, effectively, that at the higher levels, you get the more skillful dribbling, whereas lower levels, it's basically just hoof it forward and sort it all out kind of thing? That's what the data shows us. I think your eye can see that as well. But personally, I'm not convinced that most spectators love that. The quantity of long ball games at the lower level, I think we could improve that by changing the rules. And certainly really important for improving players' long-term health as well. Absolutely. Yeah, I suppose we've probably all watched our fair share of matches where the ball seems to go just from one goalie to the other and back, which isn't the most fun watching, but there we go. I was keen to explore another area or another application of the work that you guys are doing and the Fair Game initiative. I wonder if you could explain what that is and how you're helping. Football is, from an investment perspective, quite interesting in the pyramid system, whereby the top clubs are very large financial organisations. And as you go down the pyramid through Championship, League One, League Two, the clubs become a lot smaller. But even at those levels, they're very important organisations for the local community, very valued community assets. And that's that's the level at which they tend to become financially stretched. And there have been a lot of clubs who've gone into administration over the last 20 or 30 years, and sadly a few have actually been liquidated. So what Fair Game is, they're an organisation who are looking to improve the governance and financial sustainability of football in England and Wales. And we're supporting them with the development of something they're calling the Sustainability Index. So what they're asking the government to do is introduce a system whereby clubs who are rated best on the Sustainability Index, and that's being rated in terms of financial sustainability, their governance, their fan engagement, community engagement, and equality standards, those clubs who are rated better, will also get a larger share of the financial cake that comes from television for football. And the way this would work is clubs will be incentivised to behave better, to be more sustainable, and then they'll be rewarded for doing so. So this is quite an exciting project that we're doing. We're doing it on a pro bono basis at the moment, and it's moving through with the government and potentially into a new bill coming in next year. Fantastic. That sounds very beneficial and a very good use of our skill set, I suppose, in other avenues. Great. We'll probably just start winding up then. I'm trying to summarise this conversation. Maybe, Ashley, perhaps we'll come to you first. Maybe you could tell us what's one thing you're most excited about the rest of the Football World Cup? And then what's one thing you're focusing on in the next year in terms of football analytics? For me, it's got to be, in terms of the World Cup, the Ghana-Uruguay clash at the end of the week. And hopefully seeing Ghana progressed to the second round of the World Cup would be fantastic. A great story. I do consider myself to be an England fan, first and foremost, but I think the story there is too good. And in looking forward in terms of football analytics, I think one of the things we're really excited about over the next year is sort of the next iteration of Transfer Lab and where we're going to go with that. 
And that narration will feature some new analysis, which is going to look at if you replace player X with player Y in your squad, what is the impact of making that change? So we're going to say, what's the impact in terms of output of making that change? And then what's the cost of making that change to you, be it in transfer fees or wages? So that's kind of the next iteration of Transfer Lab and sort of the next big feature and next big bit of analytics we're hoping to introduce. Nice. And Bart? For the World Cup, as I'm going to the, going there. I'm going there to the semi-finals of Ireland. I desperately hope I'll be able to see England. I've never seen England at a World Cup. This would be fantastic, and I'm actually quite optimistic. I think we've got a great team. We've got some fantastic midfields and forwards. We were able to bring on players. We've got seven or eight players who we can bring on. I'm optimistic. I'm going to be seeing England at least in the semi-final, if not the final. And in terms of developments over next year, as well as Transfer Lab, actually one of the things we're finalising at the moment is building an online platform for the European Club Association to help football clubs arrange friendlies more effectively, more efficiently, and particularly for women's clubs to enable them to experience European football more widely and more equally. And that's a project that is coming to fruition now. We're going to launch it along with the ECA in February, and that's going to be a really exciting project and we hope it'll help football generally to work in a better way going forward. Yeah, that sounded really interesting. I heard you talk about that, basically sort of a matchmaking thing, right? As a club can say, right, we want to play this sort of club, home or away, this window. Listening to it, I was a bit like, well, yeah, it sounds a bit obvious, but you were saying that basically all that gets arranged by just who you know, texting people you know kind of thing, and it can be a bit haphazard, whereas doing it more formally could be a boon for everyone. Yeah, we think so. I mean, you might take for granted that, that type of stuff happens at the moment, but it's certainly not. And we hope that by the time it comes to next summer, clubs could say, I want to play a team of roughly this strength. I want to travel up to this distance and I've got this window of time available. And then our tool will do that matching for you and give a list of appropriate opponents that you can then message and engage with. Neat. Brilliant. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. Could go on all day. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Ashley. Really enjoyed that. And Bart, have a great time at the World Cup. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Mary. Thank you. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.